A shipbuilding renaissance or an aerospace disaster? Can the British forces still rely on the British defence industry for their kit? Catalonia seeks independence from Spain but still wants to be in NATO. And RAF Bryce Norton welcomes back its hurricane disaster relief teams. Everyone has mocked in, come together and done their bit. Very proud of everyone. Can Britain afford to have its own defence industry? One week, the Defence Secretary is painting a picture of a solid future for shipbuilding. The next, BAE Systems announces 2,000 job losses because of flagging sales of the Eurofighter Typhoon. Well, I'm joined by the editor of Defence Analysis, Francis Tuza, as well as BFBS's own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Francis Tuza, when we Go see the state of British aerospace, is that also bad news for the British forces? Um, ultimately, yes. Um, you, in your introduction, you were saying, can we afford a defence industry? Well, if you bear in mind a country like Sweden, which has a population of, what, 12 million, defence budget of 6 billion a year as opposed to 35 billion, they can afford to have a very, very successful defence industry. It's probably only in this country that we do have a very, very negative reaction to our own onshore industry. I, I can't imagine this type of debate not really a debate, or discussion happening anywhere else in Europe, Australia, Canada, let alone India, Japan. What percentage of British forces rely on British-made defence products, Francis? Um, of course, we then end up with problems that, for example, Lockheed Martin does actually have facilities in Britain where they, they actually build, design stuff. I think you would say, generally speaking, looking uh, certainly ahead over the next 10 years somewhere of the region and this is including support as well which is is important to make clear somewhere in the region of between 60 and 65 percent is uk based but 30 35 percent and growing is overwhelmingly uh us sourced christopher lee let's look at the balance between foreign sales and what the british forces actually need to do their jobs has the government got it wrong it's not a question of, OK, you have to start off by saying what sort of forces do you want and therefore you start begin before that by saying what sort of foreign policy do you want and the British forces in theory are there to guarantee that foreign policy. But the, the difficulty is you can have a foreign policy that can stay, change next week, you know, inside Brexit, not Brexit um, or whatever, whereas you buy a bit of kit and it can be there for 40 years and it's, it's the structure that goes with it. So if you buy two aircraft carriers, you've got to buy all the, 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 the top side stuff as well, I mean, all the radars, etc. But more importantly, you've got to the, the support vessels and the support vessels at surface level and below. But then you get into a fact that you've got two basic sort of uh, the spectacular aircraft, for example, like I know some like the the Typhoon. Now, the Typhoon, which is a Eurofight, in other words, other people are in, in, involved in it: uh, Germany, Italy, and Spain. Um, you you have to look around and say, well, is that good or not? Is that or was that particularly bad? Well, you've got sort of 600 orders for that aircraft, uh, which is from eight customers, right? Um, so therefore, it's very important to the industry that that keeps going. Now, the RAF doesn't want 600 aircraft, and therefore, you have to say, well, uh, that is much part 
of where it gets its extra money so that it can have mm. updating, etc., as it as it would as, as part of the ordinary sales sort of thing with which British Aerospace. I think they're much further apart than one imagines. Francis Chooser, um, what do you think about this news this week means for Britain's future capabilities of building these kinds of aircraft? Um, what you will hear out of the Ministry of Defence is they will say that there is a Anglo-French programme to design and build a unmanned combat air vehicle, which should sort of see the light of day flying around 2025. Um, the problem is that it's actually quite a small program. It is not absorbing much design capability. And we're at a situation where, quite frankly, if there aren't export orders or significant work from the UK, the well, BA systems will naturally downsize and we will start losing capability incredibly rapidly. And to repeat, do you know what? In any other country in NATO, let alone places like Japan, South Korea, India, this would be treated as pretty much a national emergency and people say right what can we do to ensure capability is retained in, the ministry in, of defense is increasingly detached and they'll say oh in, industrial matters are nothing to do with us which is just not the case there is something francis sometimes i think myself well, um is there a moment when the united kingdom has to actually uh not say this is what we can afford but this is what we want to do and we want to have a foreign policy that chimes in with that so for example you will then get the questions do you, should was it a wrong thing uh to order to um uh, to um uh, carriers for example because you really do need all the service fleets and, and the subsurface fleet that go with it uh that mm. becomes a, a big project then you get into even the bigger uh, question which really uh uh, is almost a moral question as well. What about Trident? And so we, you know, unlike the Navy opera, operating out of Ishtad or something like that in Sweden, we have major, major projects which we are theoretically tied into for the next 30 or 40 years. And that is one of the difficulties that the, that the Defence Ministry has. It can't guarantee that it's going to have a budget which will go without hitch. Francis, is it too late uh, to have a radical rethink then of what is on order for the next 25 years or so? Uh, you can always have a rethink, and if, as is probably quite likely at the moment, we get a Labour government in the next two years, I think you are going to see a spectacular rethink about an awful lot of the equipment programme. Um, the problem is people will likely take decisions in uh, on the spur of the moment, which, quite frankly, they will regret very quickly thereafter. I do like not what think do you think? Is, what kind well, of decisions um, do you think? Uh, well, if you were to suddenly say, right, let's just bin Trident, um, the idea, by the way, that that money would then get spent elsewhere in defence is, is <laughs> delusional. It won't. It will just disappear elsewhere. But you will then lose some capabilities on submarine build. The remaining submarine programme, just as an example, will become actually uneconomic. Oh, we do um, to... So those type of decisions, you look back at the cancellation of, of Nimrod uh, back in 2010. So we've exited that particular area of capability and we have bought an incredibly expensive and not that good system from the United States. Again, it is impossible to overestimate how reliance on the United States, we don't get particularly cheap equipment and we suffer in terms of the support costs. So what do you see then as the future of the British defence industry, Francis? 
I think you need to see a much joined, uh, much more joined up uh, relationship with government. You should think it was there already. You mentioned the national shipbuilding strategy, your introduction, one of the worst documents I've ever seen at the MOD, but at least it recognises you need a 30-year horizon to actually plan things. And the fact is, defence equipment takes a long time to design, build, whatever, and I think we probably now need a, uh, not just a defence industrial strategy, but sector strategies for aerospace and land systems. And then you had I the I don't believe the MOD will do it, though. Sorry, Francis. So you, you then had uh, what you expected to hear from Claire Perry. She's the business minister. And she said, oh, well, you know, what's happening in BAE systems at the moment? Um, they're not related to defence spending decisions. They Which always are. Abs- yeah, it- it's absolutely not true. Let's go back. The reason 2,000 jobs are going is... Uh, and it's it's in inverted commas blamed on exports. Yes, exports of Typhoon have seen a, a drop recently, but at the end of the day, the last RAF Typhoons are coming off the production line. Uh, ty- tornado is going out of service earlier than had been planned, and that's what's causing the job losses. It is down to domestic spending. And bearing in mind there is a forward spend in US dollar terms of $40 billion coming straight out of US factories... That's money that could have gone into British factories. All right. On that note, Francis Tudor, good to speak to you today. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Kate. Still to come, mine hunting off the coast of Scotland for exercise joint warrior and return from the hurricanes. RAF Bryce Norton welcomes back Operation Rumen's air crews. Catalonia is seeking independence from Spain. The pro-succession government in Barcelona says it would like to stay in both the EU and NATO. So what could this wealthy region offer to the alliance? Well, James Hazick is a senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Centre on International Security and joins us now. Good to speak to you today, James. Is defence and security on the Catalan government's agenda? I think it's surprisingly on their agenda. Let's say that an organization, a think tank that's closely associated with the Catalonian government and the ruling party, a few years ago uh, put out a uh, rather comprehensive white paper about what the Catalonian, uh, what future Catalonian independent governments might invest in, what sort of defense capabilities, and it was a fairly robust and I thought well thought out uh, agenda. So, what kind of defense do they want exactly? You know, I, I would contrast it with uh, what the Scottish National Party had at roughly the same time back in uh, 2014 when, when, you know, both regions were uh, contemplating, the local governments of both regions were contemplating uh, independence. Uh, if you look at the SNP profile, uh, program, uh, it was a little hazier, but it was effectively a scaled-down version of what the, the British Armed Forces are today. With a couple exceptions, of course, you know you can't buy. Uh, Scotland's a much smaller place; would be a much smaller country. You can't buy a quarter of an aircraft carrier, right? Uh, but otherwise, with just a smaller air force, a smaller army, a smaller navy, the Catalans have in mind a a concentration, a relative concentration, on a navy. The notion is Catalonia is a maritime state; it has relatively uh, few landward threats. Uh, the Mediterranean is an area of great interest to NATO at the moment. There are, there are serious security problems there, there are serious migrant issues there. The place needs a lot of policing, and Catalonia would, would, would invest disproportionately in naval and in maritime uh, aerial patrol capabilities. And I think this is, would be a big change from what uh, the alliance is getting out of uh, Spanish investment. 
Um, because I think, you know, relative to the alliance's needs, when you're actually that far from the eastern flank of the alliance, when you're really that far from the Baltic states and Poland, uh, investing as much as the Spaniards do in in their army and in particularly in armored forces is a little strange. Mm. And could Catalonia afford to defend itself? Well, I think that any country that's a member of NATO winds up affording to defend itself just because when you're part of an alliance that's that large, you can afford to underinvest because everybody around you is investing. So, you know, we can look at there have been plenty of countries in NATO that haven't gotten close to the recommended 2% of GDP threshold, but, you know, a few of them have been have been invaded uh, just recently. And that's, I think, in large part because the U.S. Uh, disproportionately and behind it, you know, absolutely the U.K., Norway, a few other countries, Greece, uh, are actually paying over the top to cover everybody else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if Catalonia kicked in, let's say, about a point and a half of GDP, so considerably below the recommended 2%, uh, that would be a defense budget about comparable to that of Denmark. Hmm. And the Danes may not have expansive armed forces, but I think they're very capable and they're very well regarded throughout the alliance. Mm. James Hazick, um, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is also here and listening to this conversation. Christopher? I think it's interesting, isn't it? The, uh, the Catalonia is, has an instinct for being a naval force. It has an instinct which goes back 600 years where it has an extraordinarily well-documented history, uh, which is promoted, and there we were then, there we were then. I mean, if you look at the, something which the British are always going on about, the Royal Navy is going on about, and that is the the great Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, a large part of the French force is, in fact, Spanish. A large part of it was Catalonian. And they, in in the museums, this is made a big thing of, bring it up more further up to date, and you have this combination. Don't forget Portugal's in this region as well in this peninsula, and Iberland, uh, the Iberian Atlantic, uh, a, a grouping of those two countries, extraordinarily important because they saw the wider field, and also. Just as we were talking then about, you know, well, it's miles away from the, uh, the the Baltic states and what's going on there. The truth is this. When NATO was formed in 1949, it was recognised that some states, they're not all going to charge to the imaginary front line. Some states would be doing things that other states, A, couldn't. But while other states, maybe bigger states, were doing jobs in what was then, sort of, you know, the beginning of the Cold War, but it, it, East versus West, places, uh, countries like Spain would be doing jobs which others have moved mm. on to do something else. They're filling in the gaps. So the, the maritime state and the instincts at a time when you have in 27 countries in, in NATO at the moment, four of them, very much including Spain, is going into some terrible uh, instabilities of wanting independence, or having arguments, you know, British wanting to get out of Europe, the Americans not, the Europeans are not very, uh, are not sure about the Americans, and Turkey, the most uh, important member in the eastern part of NATO, that's going through a crisis mm. as well. So the, the importance of Spain, the importance of Catalonia, is a 600-year history which hasn't diminished one James, bit. James Hasek. What do you think oh, the effect I've, I've, of all this instability that Christopher, the, the, the actual, I thought you were trying to get in actually, James, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, what do you think the effect <laughs> okay. of all of this sorry instability? About that, sir. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> what do you think the effect of all of this instability that Christopher's just outlined is having on NATO? 
it's not remarkably helpful. Okay, uh, that's certainly true. It keeps you know it keeps the attention of national governments in places as far off as Spain uh, on domestic issues when we could use a little bit more attention. Uh, look, I mean, you know, the United States is, of course, no no uh, uh, exception here. When we could use a little bit more attention on the trouble that the uh, Russians are trying to scare up on on our our common eastern frontier, in a sense. Mm. Um, but but I have to say, I must agree with what Christopher is saying that um, we don't need each individual NATO country to invest equally across the board in all capabilities. Now, some don't do this. But, you know, as he's noting back in the 50s, at, at for, uh, you know, for late 40s, early 50s at formation, um, the, we didn't expect that, you know, a rearming Germany was going to focus on uh, guarding transatlantic convoys. We really didn't want, a, a re, you know, a rearming Germany to do that. We were much more interested in, in their trying to hold, hold the inter-German frontier. And, and it was indeed the Portuguese who, if you were going to kick something in, we could use a couple extra frigates, you know, to, to guard, the, guard the sea lanes. Uh, if... if you know, it, it, Catalonia has that history. That's something, whether for recruiting or for retention or just inspiration of morale or, you know, as a focusing function uh, of, of managerial attention within a new defense ministry, um, you shouldn't underestimate. Uh, I, I don't think Christopher is. I think he's getting the point quite right, but uh, you shouldn't underestimate that those cap- that the meaning of that history and how the effect it has on, on people going forward. All right, on that note, we'll leave it. James Hazick, Senior Fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Centre on International Security. Thank you for your time today. Now, 35 ships and submarines from 13 different countries have come together off the west coast of Scotland as part of Exercise Joint Warrior to rehearse an international response to a range of global threats. Rosie Layden has been to see two minehunter vessels which will sail to the Gulf later this year to protect vital shipping lanes from enemy attack. HMS Herworth, lying off Scotland's Kintyre Peninsula. The minehunters are one of the Navy's smallest assets, but they pack a big punch. Lieutenant Commander Charlie Collins is the CO. We bring a huge amount of capability for what is a, quite a small ship. So um, from logistics uh, just to sustain at sea, but also we have a diving team who are able to uh, go down to a depth of in excess of 60 metres. And we also have the remote operating vehicle, the Seafox, which is also our identification and disposal capability of mines that we can find in the area. When Iran threatened to close the Straits of Hormuz in 2014, it led to a permanent international minehunter presence in the Persian Gulf. Using mines to block the strait would be a cheap and effective way of controlling this key maritime choke point. From December, crews on board HMS Herworth and sister ship HMS Ramsey will be heading out to the Middle East for a seven-month deployment. Well, certainly uh, not just in the Straits of Hormuz. Let, let's talk about in a global scale. There are many different key straits that uh, are around the world that our merchant vessels need uh, to be able to safely operate. And, and yes, uh, mines are cheap uh, and easy to get hold of. And it's our ability to be able to uh, counter that threat to ensure that we can keep those sea lines of communication open. The Seafox submersible is what the mine countermeasure vessels use to detect any potential danger. It can be launched quickly over the side and then piloted by an operator on board. Petty officer Chris Otway controls the mini-sub as a video feed relays what it finds to the ship's ops room. We use that vehicle to drive down and we position that on the mine uh, and 
But the Sea Fox can't operate in all conditions, and mine hunters also have a team of specialist divers who are regularly called on to identify mines by hand. Leading diver Josh Spiby. There is times when divers do actually have to be in, like, interrogate what's on the bottom as opposed to the Sea Fox, because if the Sea Fox can't ID it, identify it, we go down and we've got our fingers, hands, and body measurements we can measure and idea exactly what it is. That must be tense at times, I guess. We have to actually get up close and personal with the mines. Yeah, yeah. Conditions are often quite testing, as you can imagine, around the UK as well. Visibility is often zero, so we can't actually see what we're doing, and you tend to lose uh, all light anyway past 30 metres. So once you're on the bottom, it's very much hands-on, and you're feeling around in the dark and the mud a lot of the time. Yeah. As well as giving them an opportunity to hone primary capabilities, Joint Warrior is testing the mine hunters on their ability to combat small boat threats and fast jet attack from the air. For all personnel on board, this 13-day long multinational exercise is the perfect environment to prepare for their long Gulf deployment. That was Rosie Layden reporting. Christopher Lee, um, this exercise has been going for some time now. Yonks, um, absolute yonks. Has it, does it change its focus each time there is an exercise? Well, how, can, how has it changed? Yeah, I mean, what, uh, and planning, planning staff will say, is there a theme or is there anything we want to do? I mean, for example, it's, uh, MCMVs are very much taking part in this after the Gulf. It's a reminder, isn't it, that we've just been talking about uh, uh, aircraft carriers and two aircraft carriers. These little MCMVs go off to the after the Gulf, start clearing uh, for mines in the Gulf, which is, you know, the Royal Navy is now getting a, a base in Bahrain, for example. Do stuff for the Americans, do stuff counter Iran. And that's a very, very big part of what the Navy is doing. The fact that we're getting rid of some of those MCMVs seems a bit daft, and there are some people who say you need those ships because they will also be doing, so, on this exercise, uh, anti-terrorist uh, work, work work as well. So it's, it's every two years, as I understand it, this exercise. I mean, will they already be knowing what the theme will be for in two years' time? Um, well, there'll be, yeah, some of them will. Certainly the planners will. They'll probably have it for four years' time, mm. uh, the planners. The important thing is it is a command. It's also command and control. If you book 35 ships out there, you've got to know what they're doing. Whoever's in command has got to say, this is what I want to happen. Everybody's been briefed, etc. But it is, it is almost going back to 1916 mm. and actually saying, this is a very, very confined bit of water. It is terrible conditions at this time of the year. When I did, I was seasick all the time. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is very... And those are the sort of things you have to, you have to bother about. But it's, it is a confined bit of water. It's a big exercise. And people come along and join in on the way of going some, as they're going somewhere else. It's, I think it's one of the best... Apart from the Thursday, old Thursday wars, it's one of the best things that the Royal Navy take part in. Now, the last remaining British forces personnel have returned home from their disaster and relief operations in the hurricane-hit Caribbean. The RAF Voyager and A400M aircraft touched down at RAF Bryce Norton overnight. Alex Gill was there for BFBS. Hello, Alex. So Operation Rumen has come to an end. Can you remind us who was involved and what they were doing? Yes, well, uh, all of RAF Bryce Norton really has been involved in the operation. It's, you know, the largest joint humanitarian aid operation providing disaster relief uh, that we've really seen in recent times. And last night, uh, when one of the first A400Ms that was permanently deployed out in Barbados touched down, I was there with Wing Commander Ed Horn, who's the officer commanding of 70 Squadron, uh, talking about his aircraft and how pivotal they were in the work. 
70 Squadron and, and the A400M have been based in Barbados, which has been the hub of all the uh, British military activity. And from Barbados, they've been going to the outlying islands, including uh, the Turks and Caicos Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Anguilla, and, and many of the other locations as well. And taking the, the freight, equipment, personnel um, from, the, uh, from Barbados into those locations. And then, and then in times of need and, and frankly desperation of some of the, uh, the, the local nationals that, that are out there extracting some of the people uh, back to places of safety that have really lost absolutely everything as the hurricane swept, swept through their homes and, uh, and houses. And Alex, this was a big test for the A400M. How did it get on? Well, it's really come into its own over the last five weeks. The 70 Squadron, a really proud moment. Op Ruman being the first major operation the squadron have been at the centre of with the A400M Atlas. They're the first frontline squadron to operate the aircraft for uh, the United Kingdom defence. So, uh, again, it's been, it's been an absolutely pivotal time for the A400M2 aircraft who have been working alongside the C-130 delivering aid on the ground to the hard-to-reach areas. Uh, and again, Wing Commander Ed Horn speaking about how the aircraft got on. What we really always knew, that, that uh, the aircraft would come in, into its own in this kind of scenario where we needed to move uh, equipment, people, uh, building materials, food and water and really uh, into some really short runways. Some of these islands are quite small so there isn't a great deal of space to build runways and many of the runways are very short and that's where the aircraft really comes into its own. And I understand every type of aircraft based at Bryce Norton has been involved. Yes, there are four aircraft types here at Bryce. We have the Voyager, the C-17, the C-130 Hercules, and, of course, the A-400M. You know, the C-17 pivotal right at the very start when Op Ruman launched, getting the aid, the equipment, the people, even other aircraft in the back of the C-17s, the Pumas, for example, the Puma Mark IIs from RAF Benson uh, coming through Bryce. You know, it was moving around 61,000 pounds of freight at a time, the Voyager transporting people. I mean, the first 24 hours we had uh, 500 Royal Marines sent out there. Um, so it's really been a massive effort with every single aircraft here at Bryce being involved. The C-130 working alongside the A400M to get the disaster relief zones equipped with the aid that they need once the C-17s had actually brought it out to Barbados and that was really uh, their hub of operation. Uh, while I was there uh, last night, the station commander of RAF Bryce Norton Group, Captain Tim Jones, uh, of course welcoming the first of the A400Ms back and speaking about how this has been uh, an incredible test for RAF Bryce Norton. I don't think the station's had a test like that since Afghanistan and when these kind of calls come in you always have a moment where you sit and you think right are we uh, are we ready for this um, your reputations rest and fall of a station on whether we can deliver and I'm just really proud for the team really that everyone has mocked in come together and uh, done their bit and uh, very very proud of everyone. Uh, finally, Alex, are things getting back to normal there? What's next for Bryce Norton? Well, uh, what is normal at RAF Bryce Norton? I mean, uh, just for an example, in the first 24 hours of Operation Rumen launching, 13 moves for that one particular op, but, you know, Bryce never sleeps, and just because Op Rumen was taking place didn't mean that everything else could shut down. So there are another 30 moves to other uh, exercises and operations around the world while Op Rumen was happening. So, yes, it will quieten down now. The operation uh, starts to come to a close, but I, I guess Bryce never sleeps. And, uh, you know, in October, a very busy period 
period here at Bryce every year because we always look forward to the annual RAF Bryce Norton Bravos Awards, which is Bryce's annual recognition and award service for those who do incredible work here on the station every day. So that's coming uh, uh, next week in October. And I guess really Bryce never actually sleeps. <laughs> All right, Alex Gill, thank you very much. Good to speak to you. So, Christopher, Her Majesty the Queen won't be laying her wreath at the Cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. She'll watch on with the Duke of Edinburgh while Prince Charles does it on her behalf. Is this how it's going to be from now on? This is how it's done. I mean, it's decided. I mean, last year, um, Prince Philip made it very clear that he didn't want to do it again. Um, And the Queen uh, didn't want to do it without him there. And that makes another... That's, that's, that's quite significant. How many times has she missed out doing it? Four. But they've been all for sort of things like being, you know, with, with the children, having children, etc. It is extraordinarily important to remember with the forces and this this ceremony. They regard the ceremony at Cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday as the, I think, the most thoughtful ceremony of the year. Uh, and the Queen is a, a most it, 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 it's a sort of an intimate relationship which you don't see at any other time in the year not even at sort of uh, Truman Colour there's a significant image of the Queen um, but the planning of the role is the reflection of the nation's identity when the Queen is standing there and if you've stood there as well you, you feel almost a, it's a I don't mean electricity but you feel something there is a connection um, it's a personal arrangement, I think, and between in, the forces serving and retired with the military and the monarch, whichever monarch it is. And in that light, what do you think it really means? What's the significance of the fact that she will not be doing it this time? I think that for the moment it won't... The fact that she is there, there is a sense that on the day that perhaps she is not there at all, it's either like somebody just watching over it and making sure it goes quite well... Um, Prince, so Prince Charles, just keep an eye on that, will you? Well, that's all we have time for this week. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. We'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. So from me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.